From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about the battle inside Donald Trump's campaign, about whether to take the low road or the high one. Amy Willens will analyze the role of the Trump kids, who we are told are trying to get their father to campaign on actual political issues. And we'll also hear about a chilling disaster at the Titan II missile complex in Arkansas in September 1980, where the most powerful nuclear warhead in our arsenal nearly was detonated. That's the subject of the new documentary, Command and Control. We'll speak with the award-winning director, Robbie Kenner, and the writer, Eric Schlosser. The film rolls out this week across the nation. First up today, a journey into the heart of Trump country to find out how his supporters think about the world and what happened to them to get them where they are politically today. Arlie Hochschild spent five years talking to some Trump supporters in southwest Louisiana. She's an award-winning sociologist at UC Berkeley. She's written nine books that have been translated into 16 languages. Her new book is called Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Arlie Hochschild, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Well, set the scene here. You spent five years deep in Trump country in southwestern Louisiana, talking to the the locals for a book that came out two months before the election. How did you know back in 2012 that Donald Trump would be their candidate in 2016? I didn't. To tell you the truth, I didn't. But already uh, five years ago, I sensed that we were becoming tremendously polarized and locked into our separate enclaves. And these were geographic enclaves. You know, you've got the coasts in one side, you've got the um, Midwest and South in, in the other side. In our media enclaves, you've got uh, NPR uh, on one side, you have Fox News on the other. So my journey began with taking my own political alarm system off, trying to cross over what I came to think of as an empathy bridge and go to an enclave as far right as Berkeley, California was left and really try and see why their views made sense to them. And so it was an amazing uh, adventure for me. So you think we should listen to people that we disagree with? My approach is to yell at people that I disagree with. <laughs> uh, so what? How? How do you do it? How does it work? It's actually not hard at all, and I'm sure you do this actually in your everyday life. What I I led with was extreme curiosity. I was curious about what they call the the red state paradox. And Louisiana was an exaggeration of that paradox. On the one hand, Louisiana is one of the, in fact, this year, the poorest state in uh, the country. And it receives 44% of the state budget comes from the federal government. So it gets a lot more from the federal government in aid than it gives in tax dollars. And at the same time, um, the electorate is extremely opposed to government, uh, the size of the government and the activities of the government. So how did that 
how how could that be? I mean, this is a state that has a lower life expectancy than by five years than Connecticut, and it has uh, among the, the nation's worst schools and worst health uh, uh, facilities. Uh, the death from cancer rate for men is second in the country. How could that? state not want some help to solve its problems? That was the question I was extremely curious about. And the key to your book is the the profiles that you draw of uh, well, half a dozen people uh, there who are mm-hmm. quite different and all fascinating. Let, let's start with the one that was the most fascinating to me is a man named Lee Sherman, who once worked right. for a Louisiana chemical plant. This part of southwestern Louisiana is uh, one of the most polluted counties in the in, in the country. Tell us about uh, Lee Sherman's story. I will. And, you know, I just saw Lee three days ago because after the book came out, the first thing I did was to go back to the people I wrote about and put on a dinner and uh, get together. It was really great. Lee was... A uh, began as a Democrat, actually, and came down. He's a pipe fitter and a pipe fixer, and he worked for Pittsburgh Plate and Glass. It's now called the Axial Plant. And his job was to fix leaks, and he had some very scary moments. This is dangerous work because in the pipes that he fixes is um, ethylene dichloride and vinyl chloride and hydrochloric acid, extremely toxic, if valuable chemicals. So one day his boss came to Lee and said, we have a special job for you, which is at night, out of view of the public, want you to take this so-called tar buggy that has toxic waste from the day's activities and want you to roll that buggy to the edge of the water turn the valve and put that toxic waste into public waterways. And he did that twice a day. He said he felt personally guilty, but it was what his boss told him to do. Then uh, he became ill in his exposure to these chemicals. he, He couldn't walk. And the company put him on medical disability. And then it fired him for absenteeism. So he did not love his company. And a lot of these people who are Tea Party or Trump people, it's not that they love, you know, the private sector or the companies they work for. Often they've been very ill-treated. Well, a few years later, there was a fish kill that, as you can imagine, with all this toxic pollution, the turtles were turned blind and would remain on the rock and die, uh, not being able to see their food, and fish would flip and flop, animals fell dead. Finally, there was the the government, state government, uh, declared a fish advisory. In other words, consumers were to limit their consumption of these contaminated fish. Then the fishermen and the restaurateurs thought, there goes my livelihood. This is terrible. The state must be bad, must have done something trying to shut us down. And there was a huge meeting with a thousand fishermen protesting, you know, the big bad government, blaming it automatically. And then Lee Sherman got up on the stage and held a handmade sign that said, 
I'm the one that dumped it in the river. Oh. Then suddenly you could hear a pin drop. You know, oh, wait a minute, maybe it isn't the government. Maybe this company asked this guy to do it, and he's he's fessing up. So that really turned things around. And now Lee has retired, and he's been an environmentalist, part of a community doing great work uh, trying to get some regulation of the polluters. And uh, he's a member of the Louisiana Tea Party, and he's planning to vote for Trump. And Trump, the first thing he wants to do, he's unclear on many of his goals, but clear on this one, is to abolish the Environmental Protection Agency. So this is where I want to yell at Lee. Like, how can you, don't you understand? Don't you know? How, yeah. But you you did not yell at Lee. What is his thinking here that it's so, will yeah. you call it the red state paradox, the people most yes. damaged by environmental pollution are most opposed to environmental regulations. How do you understand yeah. this? Well, I think there are three layers of experience that lead to a person like Lee's view of the federal government or state government. The first is federal government feels like the North. You know, and the North is always wagging its moral finger, yeah. trying to defeat and humiliate the South. So there's that. But I wouldn't actually give that that much. And there are a lot of Tea Party and right-wing Trump advocates uh, that aren't in the South, too, of course. But the second thing is that these companies in Louisiana really control the state government. The state government is a servant to them. And what they do is say, well, you know, we could go off to Texas, so give us some incentive money. And uh, indeed, uh, Governor Bobby Jindal did give $1.5 billion in incentive money to a group of petrochemical companies to stay there. With that money, it then gives out gifts, one to the Audubon Society, one to a bird sanctuary, uh, so that people think, oh, companies, that's good. They give us jobs, although these are highly automated plants and they import Filipina pipe fitters, so there aren't very many jobs, but there are some. The companies give us jobs and they give us gifts. Look what nice things they give. Meanwhile, the state is doing the moral dirty work for the company. It is pretending to protect the citizens, but it is not, in fact, doing that. It's very lightly regulated state. So you can, if people say, look, the, we're paying the salary of the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, but they're not penalizing the people that have these explosions and cause these drilling accidents. So why should I pay their salary, especially when, you know, I haven't had a raise in two uh, decades, mm. and, you know, my wife's working, we're working long hours, and a little tax money would, would be like a raise that allows us to achieve this American dream. So what you have is a logic between the company and the state, on one hand, intersecting with a personal kind of desire to achieve the American dream, on the other so that's a second. So first, the state is an instrument of the North. Then it's the instrument of oil. And there's a third, I think, layer, which is the state is the instrument of the line cutters, I call them. The line because cutters, the people who cut into line. 
That's right. That comes from a a kind of an idea I got as I was uh, talking to people, that there is a deep story. Actually, for left and right, we have underneath our politics a deep story. And what a deep story is, it's the life as it feels to be true. So you take the moral judgments out, you take the facts out. It's just what feels true. And the deep story for the right is that you're waiting in line as in a pilgrimage for a prize at the top of the hill, the American dream. And you've been waiting in line for a long time, and the line isn't moving. And then you see some people cutting in line ahead of you. Feels unfair. Who are they? Well, they're affirmative action blacks who are taking jobs formally reserved for whites, affirmative action women taking jobs formally reserved for men. There are immigrants, refugees, even they think, you know, the uh, oil-drenched, endangered brown pelican. And they say, well, look, they're putting, the federal government's putting animals ahead of people. Mm -hmm. And they then think that Barack Obama has been in sponsoring these line cutters. So they blame the federal government. It And it seems to them an instrument of their marginalization. I was very interested to learn from your book that these Trump supporters in southwestern Louisiana are very sensitive about being called racists. And they insisted to you that they are not racists. One of the things you asked them was, well, what does it mean to be a racist? And what did they tell you about that? They told me that a racist is a person who hates blacks. They don't hate blacks. And a racist is a person who uses the N word, and they don't use the N word. And with that definition of racism, uh, they, they don't honestly feel like they are. And Yet they feel, and this they feel keenly, why you can't use the N-word, you can freely use the R-word, redneck. They felt that liberals were looking down their noses at them, seeing them as Southern, as poorly educated, as backward in their social attitudes, as uh, racist, homophobic, sexist, and as one woman put it, even fat different norms of of weight. So they felt put down, and that stung. If you've been waiting in line all this time and trying to be good-humored about it, and then to be castigated by someone a little ahead of you in line felt like the ultimate insult that made you feel like a stranger in your own land. The title of Arlie Hochschild's book. What do they think about Donald Trump? In some ways, Donald Trump is a very unlikely figure to be the hero of uh, these people. He's a New York real estate guy. Do they love Donald Trump? Do they see the what we regard as, let's call it, the flaws in Donald Trump's uh, story? I think the appeal, really what people said is, no, he's, he's a flawed character. And you know, I don't like how he insults people, or he'll get us into war. He's way too volatile, although they don't fault him for being rich, per se. But they felt there was nothing else they could see on the political horizon. And I think that's the takeaway. That's the, that's the paradox that I left with. I came in with one, but left with another. Why didn't they see any appeal? I mean, the Democratic Party has been supposed to be the party of the working man. 
but why are working men leaving that party in droves? I mean, we, I think that's the question. That's the paradox for the left. Uh, last question. I, I understand that your goal is not to come up with a political program that could challenge the, the Trumpism of these uh, white people in southwestern Louisiana, but can you imagine some kind of environmental project that really could enlist them and woo them away from uh, the Tea Party and maybe even unite black and white? Yes, actually, getting to know people slowly, you know, having a few beers, going fishing, lots of things come out. Like, for example, with one Trump voter, he said, you know what, we need to get money out of politics, both sides. And then he said, you know, with the environment, for example, that shouldn't be a liberal cause. At the moment, you know, the libs have it and the conservatives don't. But he said, that's silly. And I'm not against government if it does its job. You know, one could agree with that. One could see that if he lives in a state where the state is almost an arm of the company and is not doing its job, you can understand why he doesn't want to enlarge that state. So if we come to understand that, the thing he thinks is that just as Louisiana State seems to be doing the moral uh, dirty work for companies in Louisiana, he thinks that's also an inevitable federal story. And that's where we you know, have disagreement. But he would agree that actually the EPA had done some hugely important things and that the you have to remember that it was Richard Nixon that brought us the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act yeah. and that these had caused enormous changes in the industries they work in. So we've gotten polarized, but if you sit down in a relaxed way and take the accusations and insults out, you find yourself coming coming closer to them. A lot of them actually like Bernie Sanders and say, oh, Uncle Bernie. It's kind of a friendly feeling. Well, he's pie in the sky, you know, very optimistic, but they, they actually can uh, relate to Sanders' desire to make democracy work again and to reduce uh, the growing gap between rich and poor. So actually, the polls get closer together the more you sit and relaxedly talk. Arlie Hochschild. Her book is Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Arlie, we salute you for your empathy and your insight and for listening to people we disagree with. Thank you for that, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do it. Now it's time for more Trump Talk. And for that, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a familiar voice on this show, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and her most recent book is the award-winning Farewell Fred Voodoo. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Today, we want to look at the fight inside the Trump camp about whether to take the low road or the high one for the weeks that remain before Election Day. The low road, of course, is the one where Trump attacks Hillary over Bill's infidelities and her conduct when those scandals flourished. The high road, of course, is to emphasize the issues, trade, jobs, family leave, 
that he would pursue if he were to become president. The advocates of the low road are, first of all, Rudy Giuliani, in some ways Newt Gingrich. Who is trying to get him on the high road, according to the news reports? According to news reports, the people who are trying to get him on the high road are Eric, Donald Jr., and Ivanka, and sometimes Tiffany. His children. Now, this is a big job for children, especially when your father is this kind of raving narcissist. Uh, But we have some examples of their efforts. Uh, At the end of the first debate, he'd had that really bad hour. He closed, you will recall, by saying, quote, I was going to say, this is Trump, I was going to say something extremely rough to Hillary, to her family. And I said to myself, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's inappropriate. It's not nice, close quote. Everyone knew he was talking about Bill and Monica Lewinsky. Uh, And then the next day, his son Eric talked about that moment on Fox News. Let's listen. He was incredibly measured. He was so respectful of her. And I was really proud of him when he walked off that stage. What moment stuck out the most tonight? Yeah, I think when he was comparing taxes, you know, we want to put people back to work in this country. Hillary's talking about, you know, raising taxes on, on, on everybody. My father wants to reduce taxes across the board. He wants to put this nation back to work. It's very, very simple. He could have gone in so many different directions. He could have been um, much harder on her in so many ways. He could have taken the low road, and I think she did in many instances during the debate. He took the high road. I think he did win. He stayed cool tonight, and as a son, I was so proud of him. I mean, he just did an excellent job. He could have taken the low road. He didn't. As a son, I was so proud of him. Uh, Amy, your comments on Eric Trump's defense of his father. Well, right after Donald Trump got out of that debate, he talked about how great he was for not taking the low road. And he said, you know, I could have talked about Bill Clinton's affairs and Hillary's reaction to it, but I didn't want to do it because Chelsea was in the room and it just wouldn't have been nice. I could have talked about that. So if you're going to talk about how you could have talked about something. You're talking about something, first of all. Yes. And and what is low, if not that? And then the next day, Rudy Giuliani, one of his, his they are called surrogates, encouraged him to take what his son Eric called the low road. Rudy Giuliani said Trump, quote, can point out how Bill Clinton lied under oath, was one of only two presidents ever impeached, how Hillary didn't stand up for an intern in the Oval Office. Instead, she condemned her and called her all kinds of names. She says she stands up for victims of sexual predators, but she didn't do it then. That was no victory for feminism, close quote. That's Rudy Giuliani's suggestion. I always think when I when I hear things like this, I think, what if she had instead said, Bill, you're a terrible man. I'm leaving you. I defend Monica and the thong and the dress. Then the low road they would take is she was supposed to stand by her man and she didn't do it. So no matter what, their their road was going to be low with Hillary. And of course, there is there's just the chance that if Donald goes that low on Hillary and her marital behavior, Hillary might respond by talking about Donald's marital behavior. After all, who's had one spouse and who's had three? Let's just begin there. Let's also remember that the moment in her life when Hillary had the highest favorability ratings, 65%, was at the height of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. People felt sympathetic to Hillary Clinton. They felt sorry for her because she had been wronged, and they felt attracted to her because she did stand by her man. 
another effort to get Trump on message away from the uh, uh, Miss Universe uh, gaining weight and uh, Hillary's supposed failures regarding Monica Lewinsky. It's well known, of course, that Trump has to uh, win back some women voters. How many times have we heard white college-age suburban Republican women are, if, if they abandon Trump, there's no way he can become president. One of the campaign efforts to do that is centered on his daughter, Ivanka, who, of course, we remember from the convention, where she gave that speech about her father's support for child care and uh, maternity leave. Had you heard about Trump's support for child care and maternity leave before the convention? No, it just didn't really come up when he was a businessman. But at the convention, it came up because it was Ivanka's role to try to win back those people. And now, now she has been mobilized by the campaign uh, to make a TV ad. Let's listen to Ivanka's first campaign ad. The most important job any woman can have is being a mother, and it shouldn't mean taking a pay cut. I'm Ivanka Trump, a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. Donald Trump understands the needs of a modern workforce. My father will change outdated labor laws so that they support women and American families. He will provide tax credits for childcare, paid maternity leave, and dependent care savings accounts. This will allow women to support their families and further their careers. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Ivanka Trump's uh, ad, we hear the violins. We don't see, unfortunately, this being the uh, podcast, radio. We don't see what the images were, but you, you've watched this ad. What, what do we see on screen, uh, us TV watchers? Well, all you mothers out there, you should take a look at this thing. First of all, when she says, I'm Ivanka Trump, she's in full makeup with her hair beautifully styled, wearing what I would call an evening dress. You can't tell because it's only a bust portrait. It doesn't go all the way down, but it's a sh- kind of a sexy, cute thing. And then you see her, there's a picture of her with her children when she says, I'm a mother, a wife, and she's sitting on some kind of chaise long in a giant living room with a grand piano in the background in a very pretty red dress that we women would say is office to dinner wear. And the two children are perfectly uh, groomed in their PJs, no doubt by some off-camera person who we don't ever see. Um, And they are not pulling on her dangling earrings. They are not screaming. They are not complaining that she's not staying home tonight. They're simply very, very good children. So, And when she's an entrepreneur, she's riffling through some uh, blueprints in a very nice kind of beachy dress, while some construction workers in the background in a very clean construction site are there. It looks like it's for an annual report for something. And there are also shots of other mothers with babies. Ah, yes. Black mothers, Latinas. Everybody's the same class, which is like upper middle class. Um, Everybody is doing well. Uh, The women you see in a job, in an office setting, are obviously in some aspect of digital or digital online retail. You can't tell. They might be people from her website, in fact. Um, people are young. No one's on an assembly line. No one is working in a chicken factory. No one is uh, in a sweatshop. They're all um, nice Republican, suburban, younger women who Trump would like to attract to his campaign without his being able to do so himself. 
This is very much the opposite of the Donald Trump we know from the debates, from his speeches. This woman is elegant. She's very calm. She's very straightforward. She's very policy-oriented. I can imagine some Republicans just sort of sighing and saying, oh, if only she were our candidate. Of course, she's so pretty. She really is. And she's she seems she exudes nice in, in her public persona. It's hard to believe that the kid of Trump doesn't have a sharp side, too. But, um, but what really strikes me when I look at all this stuff is the uh, the Donald Trump classic woman and then the real people that that the this part of the campaign is trying to appeal to. So the Donald Trump classic woman are, say, the three Trump wives, his wives, who are, they may be wonderful people, I have no idea, but they were models or actresses, they're beautiful, they're coiffed, they're objects. The Donald Trump Jr. wife is another object. She's a former model, she's beautiful, coiffed. And then the Eric wife, she's also beautiful. They're all blonde, former uh, physical consultant or something like that. Um, So the the thing that they want in their lives and the thing that they are really advertising, in my opinion, by showing themselves with all their babes. Sorry, is that slut shaming? Um, (laughs) But by showing themselves with all their women, they're showing you what a woman should be like. And in fact, it, it has filtered through to Ivanka and no doubt to Tiffany. Ivanka and Tiffany are exactly that kind of woman, very beautiful, very well dressed and poised and nice hair. Ivanka, of course, is different from her mother, much more accomplished, much more independent. Yeah, she has uh, tried to um, participate in a workforce in her own way, in her own, you know, entitled way, but she's done it. Her website is amazing. She's a real professional woman. So there is that difference, of course, in the next generation, and Tiffany shows signs of wanting to do that, too. Another effort to mobilize the Trump uh, children on behalf of their father's campaign, again on the high road, uh, targets the millennial voters, another group that Trump is doing terribly with. Hillary isn't doing well with millennials uh, either. Uh, But the first attempt at this was not terribly successful. The the, the Trump campaign sent out a, a tweet with a sort of formal portrait of the three oldest Uh, older Trump children. And the text reads, this election is not about Republican versus Democrat. It's about insider versus outsider. It's time for change in D.C., exclamation point. And this is, we are told, sent from millennials for Trump and students for Trump. Please tell our listeners what the image looks like. Well, everybody is comparing it on Twitter to uh, a poster for a, a revived, a, a second version of Children of the Corn. This is not a movie I know. I know a movie because I'm older called Children of the Damned, which was the same idea, uh, sort of zombie robot children. And I'm afraid that is what the Trump kids look like in this picture. They're staring out. They're not smiling. They're uh, very formally dressed. Their hair has recently been combed. <laughs> and uh, and they're just staring with lifeless eyes at the camera. And it's it's creepy. Um, someone said it looked like a, a recruiting um, poster for Scientology. And it has a little bit of that cookie-cutter look to it. But 
one of the things that's most interesting to me is millennials for Trump and students for Trump. Yeah, if all the millennials and the students live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on Park <laughs> Avenue and wear ties and, you know, gingham shirts, they just don't look like millennials. Where's the facial hair? <laughs> <laughs> Amy Willens, longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Thank you for coming in again and helping us understand the high road and the low road in the Donald Trump campaign. My pleasure, John. Now it's time to talk about a new documentary, Command and Control. It's rolling out across America this week. It tells the terrifying story of the night in 1980 when an accident at a nuclear missile complex in Arkansas nearly triggered an explosion 600 times more powerful than Hiroshima. The film was directed by Robert Kenner. He's also the producer and co-writer of Command and Control. His film, Food, Inc., was nominated for an Academy Award and won two Emmys. His most recent documentary was Merchants of Doubt, that's the film about the so-called experts who defend the makers of toxic chemicals and the companies that contribute the most to global warming. He's won all kinds of awards for his work on American Experience and also on HBO. Robbie Kenner, welcome. Thank you. And we're also joined by Eric Schlosser. He wrote the book, Command and Control, and he's writer and producer on the film. Eric is best known as the author of Fast Food Nation, which helped start a revolution in how Americans think about what they eat. The book spent more than two years on the New York Times bestseller list and was translated into more than 20 languages. His second book was Reefer Madness, also a New York Times bestseller. And in 2013, he published the book Command and Control. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and it won the gold medal from the California Book Awards. Eric Schlosser, welcome. Thank you. Well, Eric, let's start with you. Damascus, Arkansas, was one of the dozens of places in the United States that had a Titan missile base nearby in 1980. What was the Titan, and why did the United States put them in Arkansas? The Titan was the biggest intercontinental ballistic missile the United States ever built, and on top of the Titan was the most powerful nuclear warhead that we ever built. I mean, you mentioned that it was... 600 times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima, but it was also more than three times as powerful as all the bombs used by all the armies in the Second World War combined, including both atomic bombs. Now, why was it near this little town of Damascus, Arkansas? It was because Wilbur Mills was head of the Ways and Means Committee. He was extraordinarily powerful in Congress, and he wanted uh, to bring some money to Arkansas. There was absolutely no logic in having it in Arkansas. Uh, most of the other missiles were put in the Great Plains, uh, far away from population centers. But this one um, just happened to wind up uh, in the foothills of the Ozarks. One of the guys you interviewed who had been part of this uh, incident uh, has this memorable quote where he says that they always thought that if there was a nuclear missile exploding on American soil, it would have come from the Soviet Union. They never dreamed it could be one of ours. So, Eric, tell us the story of the accident. Well, just before I get to the accident, there was such compartmentalized secrecy during the Cold War that the guys who were operating the weapon systems really didn't know about a lot of the safety problems 
with the weapons, and the guys who knew about the safety problems had no idea what was happening in the field. And what was happening in the field again and again is the seemingly trivial events, seemingly trivial mistakes could have terrible, monumental consequences. Uh, on the night of September 18, 1980, there was a work crew doing routine maintenance in this Titan II uh, complex in Damascus, Arkansas. The workers were, were, were standing on a work platform near the top of the missile, and one of them dropped a tool, a socket. Uh, it bounced on the platform. He reached for it, missed it. It fell through a narrow gap in between the steel work platform and the missile. It fell about 70 feet, hit the silo wall, ricocheted, and hit the missile. And when it hit the missile, it punctured a hole in it, and suddenly there was thousands of gallons of highly explosive, highly flammable rocket fuel filling this missile silo. And the Air Force had no idea what to do. This missile had been on alert for 15 or 16 years. Nothing like this had ever happened to any of the Titan II missiles. And they had checklists for almost every single task at the launch complex, but there was no checklist to how to deal with this uh, fuel leak, and they were aware that this powerful nuclear warhead was on top of it. So the story of my book and the story that, that Robbie really focused on in his film is a minute-by-minute -minute description. And, and Robbie's film particularly is like a techno-thriller. It's sort of a Tom Clancy techno-thriller in which nothing works. And the question is, can these young airmen, 18, 19, 20 years old, save the missile, save the warhead, or is there going to be a catastrophic explosion uh, in rural Arkansas? Robbie Kinner, you had a big challenge as the director of command and control. This is the true story of events that happened 36 years ago. But of course, a disaster, there's not a lot of contemporary footage of the event itself. Yet, you have astounding footage inside the silo. You recreate the, the socket dropping. How did you shoot this, and how did you make it so real? Well, starting out with an amazing story that Eric uncovered through Freedom of Information uh, searches, uh, I thought, okay, here's an amazing story about this event that on some levels was in the news, but it only lasted there two, three days because the American public didn't get the real story because there was never any mention that this warhead could go off. So I thought, here's this great story, uh, but there was not a lot of footage. There were Air Force training films of people in the command center, and there's some footage of the PTS crew, which is the guys who are refueling the missile and were responsible for dropping the socket that day. So we had some footage, and it was that bad 1980s video. There was footage after the missile exploded. I won't say what happened to the warhead. After the missile exploded, there was footage outside that night with the men waiting to go in, and some of our main characters there's uh, are on film. But we needed to fill in and put a camera where there was no camera that night. And it took a lot of work to be able to get into the last remi remaining Titan II silo, which is a museum that's run partially by the Air Force and partially by the, the museum itself outside of Tucson. It's an amazing location, and, and eventually... We were led in with open arms, and we were able to put drones between the missile and the wall four feet away. And wow. It was exactly identical to the Damascus site. It enabled us to shoot images that 
you know, we could create this techno action film that Eric was talking about, and it was the thrill. One of the best things about this film, Robbie, is that you got, seems like, almost everybody to talk to you. And they're very smart, eloquent, remember everything. Was there was that a, a difficult task? Were they eager to talk to you? And was there anybody who wouldn't talk? Well, Eric had searched out all of these people prior to our filming when he was writing his book. I think there was a certain amount of goodwill towards Eric so that these people were willing to come forward and talk. It was very hard. Dave Powell, who dropped the socket, this was a very traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was very difficult for him to come talk. And actually, I kind of thought our first interview did not go well because Dave took it lightly, and I know it wasn't something he took lightly. Uh, so we had to ask him back, but he had shaved his mustache. Uh, so we thought about, we basically had to wait until his mustache grew back. And he really didn't want to come the first time and really didn't want to come the second time. But his wife helped me hmm. get him there. And uh, And what was interesting is we found out that Dave had never told his mother about this incident wow. until about three weeks ago when he took her to see the film. And I, I, I hate to praise Robbie too much publicly, <laughs> but for me, the most powerful part of the film uh, are the stories of these young airmen. Yeah. It's really been forgotten that, you know, there were young guys who risked their lives and sometimes lost them during the Cold War, uh, in this case, trying to prevent a nuclear catastrophe. I spent hours with these guys. I really was able to hang out with them. But what Robbie was able to do was get them into a studio in front of a camera, maybe for the first time, and make them feel comfortable enough to speak quite honestly. And I think for some of them, it was literally the first time they had spoken about this accident uh, in any kind of public forum. What was incredible is that we did a screening in Washington, D.C. and a screening in New York City. Some of these guys had not seen one another since the night of the accident, without giving away uh, too much of the film, these guys put themselves into the most dangerous possible situation with a massive thermonuclear warhead uh, at risk and were terribly treated afterwards. For their, They were brave beyond belief, were terribly mistreated. And one of the things I think this film does a very effective job of doing is not only giving you a sense of the drama of trying to save this missile, but also honor these people honor these young men who uh, who really put themselves in harm's way on our behalf. John, one thing that's interesting is since this film has been seen, the Undersecretary of the Air Force from uh, that night is now uh, wanting to get together and to honor these men. And wow. so, so Congratulations. Nice. Uh, there's one familiar face in this movie, the young governor of Arkansas, Remind us who was governor of Arkansas when this happened. Well, Bill Clinton was the youngest governor in the United States. He was up for re-election. It was a tough re-election fight. One of the major issues in 1980 when he was running for re-election was that his wife was named Hillary Rodham and not Hillary Rodham Clinton. But, you know, this sounds so corny, but if that nuclear warhead had detonated, it would have changed the course of American history, not only because of much of Arkansas would have gone up literally in flames, but Bill Clinton was in Hot Springs, not that far away. Vice President Mondale was there for a Democratic convention. Uh, Chelsea was a one-year-old baby. And uh, this was sort of, I mean, Clinton wound up being on the Today Show to talk about the accident. 
this was the beginnings of his entry into the national stage. The Titan II was way too dangerous because it used this liquid fuel, and the Air Force phased it out and replaced it with much safer missiles, the Minuteman. So now we don't have to worry so much, right? I was at a Minuteman uh, silo just this past week. It's sort of like that museum you went in Tucson. It was in North Dakota, and it was very unnerving. And it was unnerving because this museum that I visited was remarkably similar to the launch complexes that are on alert right now as we stand here speaking. These launch complexes were built when John F. Kennedy was president. <laughs> the Minuteman III went into the silo in 1970 and was supposed to be retired in the early 1980s. Once again, we have a very aging weapon system with nuclear warheads on it. The computer in this underground complex that I saw the other day that's going to receive the emergency action message from the President of the United States, perhaps a launch order, is an IBM Series 1 computer, which was a technological marvel in 1976 oh, when no. it was invented. And the new iPhone is a thousand times more powerful in terms of memory. So hmm. once again, uh, this is a problem. And I'll just wrap it up by saying there was a significant nuclear weapons accident involving a Miniman 3 two years ago at a silo in Colorado. And it's eerily similar to the one that Robbie uh, shows in his film. There were workmen working on the missile. They did something wrong. It's unclear what they did. They brought in another crew the next day and seriously damaged the missile, a multi-million dollar damage to the missile. Now, the Air Force is refusing to reveal any of the details. The Associated Press is sued under the Freedom of Information Act. But uh, something quite serious happened at this Minuteman silo, or the Air Force would have no problem telling us what it was. John, one thing that I think is interesting is uh, Secretary of Defense Harold Brown, who was Secretary of Defense at the time of the Damascus accident, says, you know, on one hand, our missiles are much safer, they're solid state, the weapons are safer, but there's a level of sort of a lack of concern that exists today that makes them that much more dangerous, that we've basically forgotten about the destruction that these weapons can reap upon the world, in effect. And it's really the most important issue not being discussed. To be able to make an action thriller about something no one's talking about that happens to be real was a great opportunity. Command and Control. It's a scary film that tells the true story of a freak accident, a near-miss, human error, and amazing heroism. And it raises a big question. How do you manage weapons of mass destruction without being destroyed by them? Command and Control is rolling out across America this week. The director is Robert Kenner. The writer is Eric Schlosser. Guys, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. 
Thanks for listening.